0: You put in Alpha Centauri. That was your cameo for this episode. I cannot believe they did that. You couldn't just write a third of all Ice Warrior episodes. You had to explicitly tie yourself in to two of Pertwee episodes. He is the biggest Pertwee-loving fanboy of all time. They brought back 92-year-old Churchman to voice Alpha Centauri, Why on earth Did you do that? You just utter fanboys. All of you. All of you. I love you, but you are f. Eff- Rolls, all of you!
1: Because pride is for everyone, even hexapods, it's This Week in Time Travel for June 13th. Welcome to This Week in Time Travel. I'm Chip. I'm Alyssa. And I'm staring at you, Alyssa.
0: I'm staring at you right now,
1: Chip. And this is not over a Skype connection.
0: He is actually here, in person, in my city.
1: We're here in DC as you may have seen if we if you saw our Facebook live uh, over the weekend, I came up to join Alyssa for Pride weekend in DC.
0: And it was fantastic to have you up here. I think we had a real great time at the parade and walking around the city and running into some other Doctor Who podcasters for dinner.
1: Yeah, we saw Eric Stadnick of Doctor Who The Writer's Room and Graham Burke of Reality Bomb. Graham was in town, so I just felt felt compelled to come up and see so many of my friends.
0: It was a great time. It was really wonderful having you all here.
1: And we're going to see a bunch of each other again in a couple of weeks. It's going to be another mini uh, Doctor Who podcaster and Doctor Who nerd uh, sort of reunion. I can't tell you. I've been part of uh, organized Doctor Who fandom for about seven years now. And it's bloody changed my life. You know, it's more than just a show for me.
0: It's very much a community. Uh, You know, of all the fandoms I've been in, these are people that become sort of like your family after a while. You know, there's uh, getting around the TV every Saturday night for your family TV show. It's meeting each other up uh, in cities all over the world to be able to say hello and get caught up with each other. Uh, So it's been uh, one of the best fandoms that I have joined.
1: Yeah. You know, I I, uh, sometimes question how much I should talk about fandom on My podcasts, uh, because you know, it sort of becomes a little navel-gazing. You know, it's about the show, not just the community, and yet the community is so important.
0: The community is so integral to this show, too. You know, it would not have survived this long without the community carrying it on and making it a part of their lives and fighting for the show. Really, uh, talking about the importance of it and what it means to them, um, and advocating for it, advocate advocating for it to stay up, stay running, uh, to have all the various institutions that have been involved with creating it keep it alive. So fandom is really an important part of Doctor Who.
1: Yeah. If I had the ability to time travel, I would probably waste it on, you know, when, when there's so much else that you could see in history and all of that. I would love to see what it was like at the Gallifrey One convention prior to 2004, prior to the new series being announced and stuff like that, because that was the, that was the fandom community. That was the community that was keeping the show alive.
0: Yes. Though I'm very much a person of the present. I like being in the doctor who community of now. I like being in the community that is, uh, experiencing the show in their own context as, uh, loving and appreciating all of the new Content that is coming in um, and thinking of new ways to approach it, keeping the show alive, uh, and loving all of the new stuff that comes out. You know, we have so many creators now on the show um, and in the comics and behind the scenes who were fans themselves. And I really love seeing how they have taken their love and appreciation for this show to be able to carry it in new and wonderful directions. So, uh, I'm probably the most boring Doctor Who fan in that I do not want to time travel. I am very happy right at this present moment right now.
1: And meanwhile, I'm just sort of like, look at where we are. Look at where we started. You know, I kind of want to see where we started.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's very valid. Uh, I think it would be fun to visit for a day trip uh, and see what all of that was like. You know, I I came into the show uh, only after the new series started airing, so... One of the things that I really enjoy is talking with the fans who have been watching this their entire lives for decades, because there's such a interesting story to be told there of how they have carried it through. Um, it's sort of a little bit like a living oral history every time that you go to Gallifrey One, um, and I do not mean this disparagingly um, for the older fans. You know, I think the babies like me, the Wilderness Years babies that come in, uh, it's fascinating for us to hear about. What fandom was like before us. You know, we will never have that experience of watching all of these episodes for the first time as they were airing, uh, and seeing what it was like to react to that at that moment. Um, and it is so wonderful that there are so many fans who want to share that experience of what it was like to watch it back then, um, and how they reacted to the stories then, because we're coming to it with, you know, years of perspective of we can go on the internet now and not only get a full synopsis Accidentally, before we even watch this episode, but know where all of these characters have been taken in the years since those episode aired. So we don't have quite that same perspective on where everything started. Uh, and it is great to get those stories from those fans.
1: Yeah. We're going to talk about fan service very shortly.
0: <laughs> oh, oh my God. <laughs> fanboys, all of them, fanboys.
1: Uh, but before we get to uh, Empress, of Mars. Uh, Just a couple of quick little news tidbits. It's a pretty slow news week, but Russell T. Davis was uh, recently uh, caught in public saying that he knows who the next doctor will be. And he said he knows who it will be. He didn't say who he will be. He didn't say who she will be. He was uh, very careful on that score
0: gender neutrality and here come the gears firing away of over speculation from a certain segment of fandom of which I am proudly a part of I'm very sorry I will try to keep the speculation and the rampant hope to myself because I really shouldn't get my hopes up again and yet I am a sucker for this sort of thing so I have all of my fingers crossed right now that this Maybe a hint that maybe we get something new and different this time around,
1: maybe. Maybe, although the the Peter Capaldi unveiling uh, ceremony, uh, the host was Zoe Ball, uh, said that you know who who he is. Or wait, it could be a she. You know, she goes through that, and then it's Peter Capaldi. You know. I'm I'm a little I'm a little more measured here but um, you know we'll take whatever crumbs we can get but I am not surprised that the casting decision's been made they've they've really got to get started on putting this show together
0: Well didn't uh Moffitt say when he announced that Rachel Talalay was directing the Christmas episode uh, that they were working on the materials for that actively so if they're working on the Christmas episode now you got to imagine they've had to at the very least, had some conversations with uh, whoever it will be that will replace Peter Capaldi. May you know, Russell says the decision is final. Maybe it is, and it would make sense for about now um, for the timing of the filming.
1: I was half expecting that Peter Capaldi would uh, vanish in a puff of regeneration energy and just before features could be revealed... Cut to credits.
0: Moffat really, really, really would love to pull that off. And yet.
1: I don't think he'd do that.
0: I, I don't think he could pull it off, and I think he knows he couldn't pull it off. There is too much rampant speculation. There are too many people who would be more than happy to leak this for however much money to the Daily Mail or whatever trash fire paper is over there to just get it out there.
1: Yeah, and, you know... Imagine! Imagine there was enough hue and cry um, after uh, the end of time, part two, over how it was sort of a love letter to the RTD years. And I've heard some people complain that they thought that it was it did a disservice to Moffat and to Matt Smith because it was so we're saying goodbye to this stuff. Imagine how much worse it would have been if we hadn't had that glorious last couple of minutes with Matt Smith in it, you know?
0: Yeah, I, I don't know. You know, it's, it's really a different experience to watch each regeneration and how the regenerations have evolved over the years. Um, you know, I think that the last two regenerations have been very focused On the actors and the era. Much more self referential to the fact that they know that an era is ending, with one of the actors leaving, and in uh, Tennant's case, actor and showrunner together at the same time. Each regeneration has had its own uh, nods. Um, I guess, you know, Davison is probably the last one that you look at that really is saying goodbye to an era. You know, he's got the faces of all of his companions and his main villain flashing as he's regenerating we don't truly get uh, an on-screen regeneration uh, for uh, Colin Baker Uh, he's not present at that time it's so it's very not self-referential and there's a bunch of behind-the-scenes shenanigans that's why it's not we don't get uh, an on-screen regeneration for Sylvester McCoy Um, and eight has his own um, and Moffat is writing that one. So that one is going back very much to the audios and all of his companions. And it is giving a nod to uh, his whole tenure and run, which doesn't have quite as clean as an ending, I guess, as some of the other doctors, because he had the movie and then he's had the audios and he still has audios. So it's more of a Appreciation for the whole of everything McGann is doing. And Eccleston has his little nod of, you know what, so is I. Like, he's aware of that. Um, I'm expecting Capaldi is going to be especially uh, self aware and self referential because they're all fanboys. This is Moffat and Capaldi who are devoted to this show, signing off and saying, this isn't me. I'm out. And they're not fully out. But I think that this is probably going to be some sort of grand send off. And I'm not necessarily opposed to it.
1: No, I wonder, you know, I'm not I'm not entirely sure it'll be that way. I wonder if Moffitt already having written one send off for Matt Smith. And that was that that wasn't quite to the level of uh, tenants send off. Uh, because Moffat was still hanging around, and I think Moffat was also sort of reacting against the tenant send off, you know the message everything's going to be fine as opposed to wow what a what a big four years let's you know I wonder if Moffat will show a little restraint with Capaldi's send off i don't
0: know I don't know the other thing is when Matt was leaving, Moffat wasn't, so you have a continuation of sorts. But Matt Smith's regeneration was very focused on not just the 11th Doctor, but Matt Smith, the actor himself. You know, there's that fourth wall breaking wink to the camera with him saying, I will always remember when the Doctor was me. And it's very much about the actor and the actor signing off and leaving. Um, And I expect that Capaldi's is going to be uh, a little bit more focused on the end of an era because it is Moffat and Capaldi leaving together. Um, So I think I I take your point. Um, I think, you know, it might not be quite as. Overwrought. Overwrought as I don't want to go. But I think that it is going to be very self-aware and, Self aggrandizing sounds mean. I don't mean it to sound mean, but I think that they're both going to, you know, toot their own horns a little bit. You know, I think they're going to both want to send themselves off in uh, a way that makes them feel good about leaving this program, about leaving their mark on this television show.
1: Mm -hmm. The only other bit of news that I thought I'd point to was the overnight ratings and. They bounced back a little bit from the historic post-Britain's Got Talent lows from last week. This week, uh, overnight ratings, 3.58 million versus uh, 3.01 last week for The Lie of the Land. So all TV was down, but it was still a higher share. And, uh, you know, people, people did come back to Doctor Who a bit.
0: Yep. I think as we get closer to the season finale here, more people are going to be tuning back in and paying attention. But um, Doctor Who is sort of up against a bunch of other summer shows that are starting uh, around this time. So people's attentions are also split between the end of the school year, end of college, uh, end of uh, in the States, at least a lot of uh, elementary, middle schools and high schools are letting up in this uh, time period. So you've got a lot of um, vacation starting, I don't know, the end of the school year in the UK, but I imagine they're facing probably oh, they, something similar.
1: They had a heck of a hangover from uh, watching election coverage, that's for sure.
0: Uh, yeah, I would have watched election coverage and I, I wanted to sleep for five days afterwards. So, uh, you know, everyone in the UK, take a break. You, you kind of earned it. I don't think it's going to quiet down there for the next few weeks.
1: <laughs> right, right, right. But come on, people, watch more Doctor Who, because we obsess over these numbers, don't we? So uh, we're gonna step away for a second and then come back to talk about the Empress of Mars. So you and I were watching the episode together, which we have never done before for new Doctor Who.
0: Yes, it was a fun experience.
1: And I had the appearance of Alpha Centauri spoiled for me. But all of us at the dinner table who had either seen the episode or had the information spoiled for us, you were the only person at the table who knew or cared. And we we conspired to keep Alpha Centauri's appearance from you. And I am going to treasure your reaction to hearing Alpha's voice and like, oh my God, is it? Is it really? I'm going to treasure that for the rest of my life.
0: Oh, when you all were talking about it at the dinner table that night, and I was just like, you know what? This will be very rare that something isn't spoiled for me. So maybe I want to have that moment of surprise happen. But I was thinking about it. I was thinking, Mark Gatus, Ice Warriors, Cameo. There's a couple different options here. And my first thought was, Alpha Centauri? that would make sense no they wouldn't bring back alpha centauri oh to yes New Doctor Who. she's 92 years old they brought the original voice actress back for alpha centauri they showed alpha's face in a little viewer on the screen i cannot believe they brought this one-eyed costume back for a brief like not even 30 second cameo it's just Mark Gatiss is king of the Pertwee fanboys. I cannot believe that they did this.
1: And that was your review of the Empress of Mars, folks. When we come back, <laughs> okay, that can't forgive every uh, every flaw in the episode. If there, if you thought that there were flaws in it, right? But
0: <laughs> no, it definitely put me in a mood at the end of it. Though I I'm a Pertwee fangirl myself, so I was downright gleeful when that ended. Um, I think it wasn't a perfect episode. It was perfectly enjoyable as we were watching it. Um, I think that Gatiss does the Ice Warriors well. I think Cold War was a very good episode, slightly spoiled by the fact that I did not like the CGI Ice Warrior head without the helmet. Like, it it just appeared weird to me. I... I, I don't know what it is. I just couldn't get over that and take it you know, really seriously. I couldn't invest in it.
1: It doesn't look like an Ice Warrior. It
0: doesn't look like an Ice Warrior. I thought this episode was almost perfect. I think that it probably needed a couple more edit rounds for it. Because it had interesting political messages there about two great colonial powers crashing into each other. And you have a infamous colonial force landing on a foreign planet and invading. And you have this interesting situation here where the ice warriors are almost always the villains in a certain sense. And, but now it's the humans who are invading. Um, and, What side is the doctor going to be on in that battle? There are no good sides here, really. There are people caught in the crossfire and there are complex systems of honor and pride and military forcefulness on either side. You have people that are so invested in their own power that they are not stopping to consider the situation and the best way to resolve it. Mm -hmm. I think that the episode doesn't quite go as far as it needed to, to draw all of those themes together. Um, I think there are some great one-liners and academics will have a lot of fun picking apart this uh, episode for years. It's engaging enough while I was watching it. Um, but I think it just needed a few more edit rounds to really pull together the message that it's trying to go for here.
1: Yeah. There is no shortage of Doctor Who episodes where and it's it's a it's a very much a per kind of thing, you it know, Silurians and Sea Devils, uh, for example there have been so many episodes where the doctor is sort of the wise elevated person in the middle between humans and aliens/monsters slash monsters sort of going at going at each other needlessly and the doctor just sort of floats benignly in the middle being offended, you know, a pox on both sides kind of thing. I did like the sort of him him explaining the logic of the situation to Bill where uh, uh, On the one hand, the British soldiers are in the wrong. On the other hand, the ice warriors are immensely powerful, and he's trying to figure out how to avoid a slaughter.
0: Yeah, because that's what it comes down to in this situation. He just wants to get the humans out of there. Um, And I think he recognizes that... You have uh, God's Acre was his name, I think, the uh, main colonel, the coward uh, who had uh, almost been hanged. And you have uh, his subordinate, uh, the sort of classic evil British force that wants to go in and wants to claim everything for God and country and forget these primitives who happen to be living on this rock that I would like to conquer. So I think that Pertwee's stories go a little further uh, in the criticisms of colonialism uh, and criticizing the humans who are invading spaces that don't belong to them. Uh, You have the humans invading the Silurian caves. Uh, You have the mutants, which is entirely about... uh, humans invading this world that they don't understand and sort of erasing the history of how the local population survives the catastrophes that occasionally inflict this planet. So uh, it is it, sort of a little bit of a nod to them. But I think it could have gone a little bit deeper into the fact that you have two colonial systems that, um, the ice warriors and the uh, Victorian British army, uh, you have complex systems of honor and pride and military combat there. And they're both colliding against each other in uncomfortable ways because the Victorians are very clearly in the wrong on this one, but one side disproportionately has the power to slaughter others. And the doctor's got to come in and be a mediating force to get this this Victorian force that literally does not know what they are doing. Like they have no idea what they have stumbled into really Mm -hmm. here. Um, And they were in a sense brought by one of the ice warriors to do the heavy lifting and dirty work of uncovering the ice warriors and, probably were intended to be killed by the ice warriors afterwards. They don't, I don't think they ever quite made that clear. Right. So neither side is really in the right here. Um, but I think the, this episode has a little bit more fun with the, the battles and the fighting than it does with exploring those themes. Yeah,
1: I think the episode does touch on those themes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the black soldier is not always treated well. Uh, Friday is, you know, that that's real colonialism you know real the and and the offense that the queen takes when she discovers that friday was forced to assume the role of a servant and uh, friday says no 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 that was my that was my cover that's what i used to you know these things these things are at least touched on
0: they are touched on i think i think it could have gone further i think um you know in terms of the the Black soldier definitely was not treated as well. Um, but the way they framed that was rank. rank and privilege and class. And there's racism there. There obviously would have been racism there. I mean, I mm-hmm. hate to draw comparisons between two writers like this, but thin ice did that theme a lot better than did Empress of Mars. Like it, it explicitly named and challenged the racism inherent there and it explicitly touched on um, whitewashing of history and who gets hurt by industrializing, colonializing forces. Uh, and Empress of Mars touches on it, but it it's more invested in the action-adventure story than it is the political story.
1: Right. Your face changed a little bit when the Empress called out Bill to ask for her opinion as a woman.
0: It's an interesting moment that I'm still not quite sure how I feel about because on the one hand, it feels a little bit like raw, raw girl power moment in a way that kind of irks me. Um, That it's a sort of trope Of if you have a lot of male characters and you're just sort of we we also have female characters to have one point to the other like that and ask for her opinion as a woman. Um, It is very much done with a male perspective on it um, because The ice warriors, to my recollection, this is the first time we've seen a woman ice warrior. We've seen an empress, a queen. I cannot recall any other time that we have done that. So we've been given this image of a very patriarchal society in a way, but we have been given the one exceptional woman of the society who is the empress. And then she is going to call out the other woman there to provide her opinion for all of the men. And then the men immediately take over the conversation. And it's driven again by the doctor, by the Victorians, um, and by Friday. And they are the ones that pretty much ultimately resolve a lot of this episode. Yeah. Um, so it it could have been interesting. I, I sort of saw what they might've been going for there with trying to upend the balance of power by saying, Of course, this woman who rules this entire society, you know, would notice the exclusion of this other woman from the other group and would want to include her opinion in it. She would not simply assume, like many of the other men there, that her opinion was not needed uh, or required in this moment. Um, So it could have been really good, but it just stuck me as a little bit insincere because Bill and the Empress are not ultimately the ones who together resolve this. Uh, it's a little bit of, you know, it's one Victorian officer shooting another at the end.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean the, the doctor postures with the big gun, but, Mm um, but it's as a, as our friends uh, Jason Snell and James Thompson uh, discussed in the uh, incomparable flashcast for this episode, uh, you know the Doctor and Bill, as is common for the Doctor in a lot of classic series, they're they're not central to the story. They're 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 pretty passive bystanders to the action. The Doctor is providing the context for us to explain the drama and what the uh, and what the stakes are.
0: Yeah. And Bill does have good moments. You know, Bill is mm-hmm. the one with Friday who is trying to create the distraction, but also providing a good moment of showing this is what cooperation looks like. Yeah. These are two people who have decided to work together uh, to resolve the conflict in this episode. Um, but ultimately... The Empress and Bill don't have enough of a genuine reaction there that that moment meant much to me. You know, it was it was the nod to the fact of, hey, we've got two ladies in this episode. okay, and now back to honor and warriors and men.
1: (laughs) Yeah. You know, you and I, we look at we look at Doctor Who a little politically. Just a little bit.
0: Maybe a tad,
1: just a bit. Um, you know, m- you know. My my tw- my Twitter handle is uh, rather less political than yours, but
0: oh, I just like to give everyone fair warning of what they're gonna get.
1: <laughs> and I know that, uh, and I've heard from some folks who are a little frustrated, not with us specifically, but you know, why does everything these days? Why does everything these days have to be political? Why does everything have to be subject to a litmus test kind of thing? But. You know, on the one hand, just because we find some things to criticize, you know, just because it's a problematic fave doesn't mean it's not a fave, you know?
0: It's not even about problematic or criticism. Everything is political, especially when you are dealing with science fiction. You know, science fiction has never been just about rockets and space and laser guns and adventures. You know, you have all of the classic sci-fi inherently political in some way or another. You have Star Trek creating this utopian society. You have Star Wars literally referencing Nazis and fascism in the creation of their empire and the order that is going to oppose it. And classic Doctor Who was exceptionally political. This episode draws a lot on the third doctor's history. And so much about the doctor is about politics. It is about colonialism. It is about environmentalism. It is about nationalism. It is about global conflict and how it is addressed and resolved and how we build up differences between different societies. Like you cannot look at that and say, this is not referencing the political conflicts of the time. You can't have an episode about Victorian soldiers invading Mars and talking about God and country Mm -hmm. and honor and pride without referencing the political context that it's coming from. I discuss this not because I'm trying to hate on this episode. I discuss it because it's making me think about these themes and making me think about what image about this time and this politics is being shown to us. And I'm bringing my own life reactions to this. You know, the thing to go back again to fandom and Doctor Who, Doctor Who is not something that we just passively watch and move on with our lives. Doctor Who is something that we are watching it. We are absorbing the stories. We are responding to them. We are finding context and reference in our lives. And If you need to know about how people are applying Doctor Who politically, look at all the flipping Doctor Who memes that have been floating around the internet (laughs) since the UK general election. For goodness sake, the first thing I saw on the internet was two monks from the last three episode arc we had standing next to Theresa May (laughs) while she's giving her speech. Like, people are applying the politics of Doctor Who to their everyday lives and their own political beliefs and their own actions everything is political the personal is political folks uh
1: i am going to get apolitical for a second here and talk about that stupid big gun or <laughs> drilling implement or whatever um uh I, I, I call shenanigans on the notion of the uh of, of, of friday and the empress sort of charging forward only in the place where the big where the big drill gargantua thing happens to be pointed and uh you, I'm sorry. You can't make you can't make an uh, uh, artillery piece-sized drilling laser thingy. It, you can't make an action sequence around that. I'm sorry. Even if Bill is distracting, I think somebody would have noticed the Doctor.
0: Look, Chip. They've been on ice for. Decades and centuries, five thousand years. You and I got about a gallon of coffee each before we were coherent this morning. <laughs> Maybe they just weren't really awake yet.
1: <laughs> uh, the the ice warriors definitely needed to have an espresso machine as part of their uh, recovery protocol. Um,
0: really, everyone just needed a good cup mm, of kofefe. Yeah.
1: Mm. <laughs> I think it's a little played out. Just saying, direction was really good. I thought this was uh, this episode disguised any budgetary limitations. I thought pretty darn well.
0: The hive was really well done. I mm-hmm. liked the scene of everything illuminating and ex- showing the uh, silhouettes of the ice warriors. Also, the line about there were only three ice warriors, and then we get two scenes just reversed of three ice warriors standing <laughs> on either side of the room. I was like, oh. I see what you're doing here. Yes, yes.
1: Uh, Gatus was trolling his way through that script, right up to the sleep no more.
0: Oh, my God. <laughs> I saw that and I snickered. I was just like, all right, friend, yeah. you've seen the reactions and you are just going to go out trolling and laughing.
1: Yeah. The sonic guns that the Ice Warriors are carrying, you know, the impact, the effect of them was uh, pretty darn scary. That
0: was really good unexpected and good
1: mm-hmm. yeah um i'm
0: gonna call it a pretzel gun now though
1: excellent excellent <laughs> pretzel gun it is and we have a show title by the way
0: there we go pretzel Guns.
1: and capaldi's performance was spot on as usual um I, I liked how he explained himself throughout the episode to bill um I liked his hesitation when he uh, had to explain to – he was embarrassed in explaining to Bill that, well, actually, Nardole for some reason has taken the TARDIS away and we don't have a plan right now. He was, he, he was abashed about that. Uh, I thought Pearl Mackey was great as usual. Yes. Um, she was – I got a little tired of the uh, movie references get running gag, although it was worth it for the Doctor's Frozen payoff –
0: yeah, yeah, I'll admit I laughed. I'm not proud of it, but I laughed.
1: <laughs> um, Nardole doesn't have a lot to do this episode, obviously, except to get Missy out of the box. More about that in a second. Matt Lucas is amusing when he does the cringy uh, stuff for for Nardole, but Nardole has also had these momentary badass moments, and we just never settle on who he is. And he... he, he it, that frustrates me. Uh, I want to like. I do like Nardole, and I do like Matt Lucas in, in the in in this series. I feel like I should be given more reason to, because Matt Lucas clearly can do whatever the script asks of him, and it's just not it's just not consistently asking good things of him.
0: I think. The problem is Matt Lucas is being treated as the tin dog of series 10. You know, he is the comic relief character that is sent off to do important tasks for the plot.
1: So lean into that. Why Why give him, if you're going to make him the tin dog, make him the tin dog.
0: I just think that they are not entirely committed to that. He It's functionally how he's used. of the time. And he has a few rounded, good, badass moments, but he is almost wholly the tin dog who's just doing the plot necessary device of, all right, well, when the TARDIS vanishes, he is going to go with it. He's going to try to fix it. He's not going to try to fix it. And this is how we get Missy out of the box. And this is how we put Missy in the TARDIS to get the doctor and Missy facing off again. Like he's the one who goes and flips the switch and does all of those necessary technical things, but Mm -hmm. isn't on his own a a really compelling or necessary character. I feel bad saying that Matt Lucas is delightful. He's had good moments during this series. I just, I feel like they're not really getting the character to work.
1: And it's making me, gaining even more appreciation for noel clark in series one and series two and sort of way you know no mickey was sort of put in that tin dog thing role and um you know mickey the idiot in early series one and you know that wasn't something that noel clark loved that wasn't something that I don't know that Russell T. Davis and the writers really thought through, but by the end of series one, and as Noel was re-upped for series two, you know, the character had an arc. Yeah. And I do not see an arc for Nardole.
0: I think part of the problem is Nardole seems to have been a sort of added on thing as the last couple of episodes have progressed. You know, he made sense as the lackey for River Song and Husbands of River Song. And he has a few moments um, in the following Christmas special where he's just sort of hanging around. And we hint that maybe he has a bigger purpose here than we're fully aware of yet. But they don't have that type of Noel Clark arc going here. We've only acknowledged the fact that Nardole has been the Tin Dog in a few exceptionally awkward moments. Um, you know, that whole line about Nardole of, I'm not a slave to any human, like that was just a bad line. Um, and we don't have that self awareness and growth happening here, um, you know, because Noel Clark has those moments where he recognizes he is the Tin Dog. He recognizes he wants to try having these adventures with Rose. And then he recognizes that there is a better place and a life with more meaning for him. And then they sort of kind of throw that away when Rose comes back from the parallel universe and he's sort of lacking on and then, oh no, we've got a clone of David Tennant for Rose to shack up with, so he's gonna be the rejected you know, boyfriend again. And like eh, we just ended it cleanly back then and like did not have any more of this. But whatever, whatever. He and Martha Jones are married and are a badass couple. Um but we don't have that self awareness from Nardole yet.
1: Yeah. Uh, last, my last comment about Empress of Mars, and this is—I I really did like it. It's one of my favorites of the season. Um, and Mark Gatiss, you're forgiven for sleep no more. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that I really liked about this was getting some of this H.G. Wells and Edgar Rice Burroughs feel for Mars, you know, Victorian soldiers on Mars. It's, it's retro Mars. It's, it's, uh, it's a, it's a look that we haven't had a whole lot of, and there's a justification for it that they're, that they hitched a ride on the ship and came back, you know, it's, it's something that we've not seen before on the show. And, that's another genre that you can check the box on for Doctor Who is we've done we've done Barsoom kind of we've done we've done the Edgar Rice Burroughs on John Carter kind of thing. And I'm I'm grateful to that. It was a lot of fun. It touched on important issues, if, even if it didn't dive deep into them. Um, and, you know, I've got a I've got an acquaintance who is a. Uh, an electronic musician and nerd who tried to get into Doctor Who and just couldn't do it. I recommended episodes to her and she just couldn't because it was too it felt too childish and bug-eyed monsters for her. This would not this would not be a good episode for her either. You know, the Empress of Mars is, you know, she's as she's as cornball and as campy as the Empress of Rachnos. Yes, you know that is what Doctor Who is. This is what this show is about. This is possibly one of the best. To borrow an old Verity trope, this is a representative episode of Doctor Who. This is very much what you can hand in front, hand to anybody, and say, "This is what Doctor Who is." And if you watch it and you get it, and you watch it, you don't like it, you know whatever it is the person that you have handed this episode to will have had an authentic doctor who experience and i think that for this is one of mark gatiss's better scripts for the new series and it is very much very much fits into the doctor who mold
0: it really does this felt very much like his robin hood story to me in a way that he's very aware of other stories that have been done with this um sort of general idea, and he wants to play on those, and he wants to comment on them, Um, and it is far and away better than Sleep No More. I'm so sorry, but, like, did not land that one, Um, and it's nice to see him, you know, I don't know if he's going to be coming back once Chibnall takes over. You know, he's really got a big relationship with Moffat and uh, who knows if they're going to want to bring him back to uh, write more episodes. If this is his send off episode, I will be happy with that. I will look at that and go, that's a hell of a one for Gatiss to write himself off on and. Uh, but now we have Missy out of the box.
1: And now we have Missy out of the box. I can't believe we forgot to say a whole lot. She wasn't a big part of the episode. You know, she says, well, you're just going to have to let me out to uh, Nardole through the speaker box. And then there she is. And she's not betraying a hint in her expression. And in her, when she asks the doctor, are you all right? You know, we don't have a damn thing to hold on to. Uh, as far as is she playing the long game or is she really trying to trying to be good?
0: But the They're... TARDIS malfunctions. And who could make the TARDIS malfunction like that from a distance?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: The, I do not trust her as far as I can throw her. I know,
1: but isn't it great that we still don't have... We had so many hints that, of course, it's Missy in the Tard- uh, in the vault. We had yes. so many hints that it was Missy in the vault. Um, we don't actually have any in-story hints other than, you know, the TARDIS malfunctioning for some reason. They're still kind of keeping us guessing and relying on us to use our own natural expectations and prejudices to explain that. And it's entirely possible that they will subvert
0: them. This is very Delgado ish. This is very much, they are enemies, but perhaps he does have a bit of fondness for the doctor and perhaps he has a bit of concern for the doctor's well being. But when it comes down to it, if the doctor gets in the master's way, it will not end well for the doctor. So I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop.
1: Mm -hmm. And once again, um, John Sim. I mean, how that I I've got I've got really high expectations for how John Sim and Missy and the doctor intersect. I don't know how they're going to do it. I'm trying not to build up stories in my head that I'm then going to be angry with them for not having conformed to my headcanon. But I really do have high expectations that it's going to be good.
0: I hope so. I really hope so.
1: So, good on you, Mark Gaitis.
0: Good on you, Mark Gaitis.
1: We'll be right back in just a moment. This week on The Incomparable Network...
0: I joined Chip's wife, Shannon, Erica from Lazy Doctor Who and The Verity Podcast, and more to take on Wonder Woman on The Incomparable...
1: Melissa Bright joins Scott McNulty to talk about the Star Trek episode that almost launched a spin-off series, Assignment Earth on Random Trek.
0: And it's a dive into two Nathaniel Hawthorne stories on the podcast that's all about the 10th grade reading list you suffered through, Sophomore Lit with John McCoy.
1: All this and more at the incomparable.com.
0: Next week, we'll be reviewing The Eaters of Light by, oh my God, Rona Monroe, who's coming back to Doctor Who. And then, oh, we're only going to have two weeks left in the season after that.
1: I think we'll need like emotional support, like therapy dogs or something like that. We're getting so close to the end of the season. And, oh man, what are we going to do after that? Panic. <sighs> and and then hope that Christmas never comes. Yeah. Ah. So, thank you for joining us for this week in time travel. You can find our podcast at thisweekintimetravel.com. dot com. We're on Twitter at Who this week. I'm on Twitter at numeral two minute time lord. Alyssa is on Twitter and Tumblr at huvian feminism. And we are on Facebook as well.
0: You can support This Week in Time Travel by subscribing, sharing, and even becoming a member of the Incomparable Network at theincomparable.com forward slash members. Thanks for listening.
1: We will see you next week on This Week in Time Travel. Take care.